This week on the Back Table Podcast. Uh, you'll see uh, coming up in Extreme IR, Ravi and I treated a case of a uh, lymphoenteric fistula uh, where Kyle was actually leaking into the duodenum on multiple endoscopies. And when we did the uh, Barali technique, we actually showed the uh, fluid leaking from the thoracic duct and the retroperitoneal lymphatics into the duodenum. And we were able to uh, sclerose it shut and uh, the patient's protein and everything recovered completely. That's awesome. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the holiday special with Backtable, your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. This is Mike Barraza returning again as your host, and I come bearing gifts, and that gift is the soothing sound of my voice, which you can hear to your heart's content through the Backtable app, where you'll find every episode of our podcast alongside additional content that we update routinely to help you, the interventional radiologist. I'm thrilled to welcome back Dr. Ravi Srinivasa and Dr. Jeffrey Chick from the University of Michigan. I encourage our listeners to check out the podcast we did last week on chronic lower extremity venous disease. Today, they're back to break down another complex topic, lymphatic interventions. Gentlemen, it's an honor to have you back. And for my first question to kick things off, did you miss me? <laughs> yeah, it's a holiday special. We got you back again today. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas to us. It's awesome. Indeed, indeed. Um, so the questions I've been asking myself for the last week really are, where do we even start with lymphatics and how on earth can we cover it all in a reasonably straightforward and time efficient manner? Um, there's just a lot here. Just bear with me for a second. I mean, I just tried to break this down into its elements and, and basically, you know, where I kept running into trouble, it, it seemed to be rooted in this, you know, what we do in IR, we're irrevocably tied to innovation. It's who we are and it's how we got here. You know, we treat the untreatable, we solve the unsolvable and we tarnish gold standards on a day's work, but usually we're you know, changing the landscape of processes that are thoroughly understood. Uh, and to me, it just seems like the lymphatic system is unique. It, you know, told Jeff the other day, I said, it's like the bottom of the ocean. We know the basic topography, but there's a lot more down there that we're still yet to discover. Um, and so, you know, here, you know, you know, we're used to being trailblazers, but it seems like we're kind of blazing our trail while still figuring out where it leads. Uh, and, we're also learning about this problem as we're trying to fix it. At least that's, that's how it seems to me. Do you guys agree? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I would say I definitely agree. I mean, at least I was sort of fortunate uh, when I trained in residency, this kind of uh, had just started to develop and the anti-grade thoracic duct approach was sort of uh, becoming popular. And uh, that's basically all we knew. And uh, Ravi and I both trained with, uh, or we all trained here, I think, with uh, Max Itkin, who was sort of the pioneer in a lot of this. And even with Max, who continues to try all sorts of unbelievable things, there's still a lot of unknown. And the great part is Ravi's come up with numerous fantastic techniques, which are, again, just explore and show that there's still even more that can be done. So you're absolutely right. It's uh, sort of in an uh, untapped uh, area, and there's lots to learn. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I mean, it, it's it's definitely untapped, but, uh, you know, it's been around since the 90s. So since 1998, Constantine Cope was the first one to do thoracic duct embolization. But there's been, I feel like lymphatic work is something that's like blue water almost in the sense that there's so many things and areas where you can innovate in and publish in and, and new techniques you can develop and new ways to make lymphangiography easier to 
to treat lymphatic leaks all over the body. But, and as you guys have said, and as Jeff said, um, it's, it's a very un, under, not well understood system. And given all that, it's, uh, it's definitely ripe for the picking in terms of innovation. And I think this is an interesting, you know, it's a great opportunity because the two of you are among a select few have really been along for much of this ride. I mean, you guys have pioneered some of the pivotal developments in the treatment of lymphatic disorders. Uh, and, you know, as you said, Jeff, uh, like the two of you, I was introduced to this domain at Penn. Uh, and, you know, starting with you, Ravi, I was kind of hoping to hear a little bit about your story for how um, the two of you ultimately helped build Michigan into its own academic powerhouse for lymphatics. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously we both trained at uh, Penn and it was only a great encounter when, uh, when J- uh, Jeff joined the practice and uh, also being from Penn and also <clears throat> sharing a passion for lymphatic work, having been inspired by uh, Max. Um, you know, I, I practiced in Houston for the first, uh, first three years of my practice. And we had, a, you know, a handful of lymphatic cases that would come up, but, you know, at Michigan, it's for whatever reason, we get a ton of referrals from all over the country and even, uh, you know, in the area in Michigan itself, we've developed, uh, you know, an adult practice, a significantly large adult practice, as well as a pediatric practice. Um, having a dedicated children's hospital, we've reached out to our pediatric surgeon colleagues, um, our cardiothoracic surgery colleagues in, in pediatrics as well. And they've been, you know, uh, referring more patients to us. And as a result, we've kind of started to adapt a lot of these adult lymphangiography procedures and such as thoracic duct embolization into the pediatric realm as well. And I think there's a lot of good that can be done in, in, in these in these cases as well. It's a much more minimally invasive approach. You don't have to make an incision. The surgeons thank us, you know, daily when we when we save them from uh, uh, when they have a iatrogenic chyle leak uh, and embolize the thoracic duct so minimally invasively without having to make an incision and without them having to go back in surgically and explore uh, and ligate the duct. And a lot of the time they may go back in and do that and ligate it. And unfortunately it may be unsuccessful. And in those cases, they appreciate us coming back in to help as well. Um, but our, our um, experience in lymphatics is very broad. We've treated patients with both chyle leaks, the usual iatrogenic chyle leaks, um, chylosocytes. We've started to develop some new techniques to treat uh, chylosocytes as well. Um, the pediatrics, as I mentioned, um, a lot of these uh, pelvic leaks after um, retroperitoneal lymph node dissections or iliac lymph node dissections where we've done interstitial lymph node embolization with glue. Um, There's so many things to, 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 that you can offer in, in the spectrum of lymphatics that, uh, that can be extraordinarily helpful uh, for some of these patients. So now that we have some background, uh, we can start jumping into some of these details of you know what you're doing, when, and in whom. Uh, and just trying to prepare for this and really found that the danger of this topic is that like a lot of these details could fill entire discussions on their own. Uh, and so, you know, I think in order to keep this reasonably cohesive, uh, I think we kind of have to take a unique approach to this. And so, you know, usually I will have us address the clinical and technical side separately, but I think for this, uh, we're going to just try to tackle them both because I think the techniques give a better understanding of the concepts and vice versa. Uh, so, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, we'll, you know, we'll never know. Uh, so Jeff sent me some outstanding articles to help me prepare for this. And uh, I'll be sure to tweet out um, some of them from the podcast, um, at least the ones that uh, haven't been published yet. So I'm going to use these articles to guide our discussion. And so what I'll do for each is just ask you a series of questions for each discussion point. Uh, and so, you know, I have a method in mind. So if I interrupt you, it's just because whatever you're about to say is meant to come up later and you're about to ruin everything. 
Okay. <laughs> we do that often. Yeah. So uh, to start with some of the fundamentals, I'm going to refer to a review on the thoracic duct, uh, whose authors include none other than Dr. Chick, now, the thoracic duct clinical importance uh, article. So, uh, Jeff, in my experience, uh, lymphatic anatomy is at best inconsistent. Do you agree? Uh, completely. So uh, I think a little bit of that article was based on some of the work that was done at Brigham and uh, really opened people's eyes to the fact that there are so many variations. I mean, people, I think, historically thought that there's only a left-sided thoracic duct, uh, but the more and more you look, uh, there are a whole host of varieties. So there's right-sided thoracic ducts uh, that dump into the right jugular venous angle. There's duplicated thoracic ducts. There's plexiform or spider network thoracic ducts. Uh, there's uh, large cisterna chile. There's absent cisterna chile. And I think uh, starting to develop an appreciation of that uh, just makes individuals understand how difficult and uh, confusing uh, this entire system and the techniques that uh, are implemented truly are. Right. I mean, an astounding statistic I read in your paper is that the, the thoracic duct is estimated to be present in only like 40 to 60% of patients. Um, so I guess just tell me this, what do you consider to be the normal anatomic drainage pathway, um, you know, just through the pelvis up to the chest and and out and how do you how frequently do you see it well i have to i personally think that i mean the normal pathway is pelvic lymphatics which eventually converge to a cisterna chile which is just a dilated uh retroperitoneal lymphatic and in the ideal case you see a single drainage channel uh from that point upwards uh to the left jugular venous angle i think that's what most people think of it as the most common variant. And uh, I thought the same thing as well uh, until we looked at a whole host of patients and saw that, you know, it's very unpredictable. Okay. Uh, so tell me, you know, we can get into some of the details a bit later on, but which variants tend to have the greatest impact in terms of treatments? Like, for example, what do you do with the duplicated thoracic duct? Uh, so I think a little bit. Uh, you have to make sure that you address all sides that are, if it's a chest leak, you have to address uh, both sides of the duplication, uh, essentially glue them both closed or glue all the tributaries closed so that nothing is filling that uh, chyle leak. In the case of chylocystitis, it makes it uh, challenging as well because multiple different uh, disruption or weepy channels or so forth uh, particularly in duplicated systems, could contribute to the leak. So you have to make sure that they're all adequately addressed and all either glued with uh, cyanoacrylate or sclerosed if you use STS or other agents. Okay. Uh, and I, I think uh, one of the biggest pitfalls to you know thoracic duct embolization is missing that secondary channel. And it's something that I've learned uh, having done many of these uh, thoracic duct embolization procedures is that now I've started, I used to kind of embolize if it was a high leak, I used to just embolize uh, cranially and not really embolize all the way down uh, or not even evaluate necessarily all the way down. But I've had a couple of times where I've been burned because there was a second parallel channel that came up from below the diaphragm and that parallel channel eventually re reconnected with the thoracic duct or resupplied the leak. 
So I think it's important to not only understand the thoracic duct anatomy, uh, but if if, uh, you know, in adults, we don't actually have imaging preoperatively to kind of evaluate the thoracic duct and pediatric patients oftentimes will get MR lymphangiography okay. and you might map out the anatomy. But in adults, uh, you really have to do a thorough evaluation of the thoracic duct to make sure you're not missing a duplication or some variant um, that needs to be embolized, as Jeff said. Okay. Now, and I'm just going to ask you what the meaning of this is, but don't explain to me how you fix the yet because we're going to say that for later. What is a plexiform variation of the thoracic duct? So I, th- I think in general, plexiform is, it's essentially a network of tiny lymphatics where you may try to get directly from the cisterna chile up to a true thoracic duct, but the network is so tiny. And I like to think of like a, uh, like a web, web-like that there's okay. no discrete channel that, say, a wire or a microcatheter will uh, navigate through. Okay. All right. That, that's helpful. We'll, we'll get through ways to uh, treat patients with those variations later on. So uh, continuing on using the same paper, regardless of how a patient's lymphatic system is hooked up, how do they typically present when it's gone wrong, focusing first on traumatic disruption? So I I think with traumatic injury, usually patients present after an iatrogenic injury, either after an esophagectomy, Ivor Lewis transthoracic esophagectomy, cardiac surgery. Um, Occasionally, so focusing on traumatic, those are your two most primary times that you might have a traumatic injury to the thoracic duct per se. Um, You know, you can have injuries to the retroperitoneal lymphatics or any surgery where they're dissecting in the posterior mediastinum or retroperitoneum where they're potentially adjacent to lymphatics or the situations where you might injure the thoracic duct. Uh, most of the patients who have an injury to the thoracic duct um, present with a chylothorax. So with uh, pleural effusion, that's milky um, in consistency. We usually measure the triglyceride levels or chylomicron levels and the cutoff we use for triglycerides uh, being elevated in, in the pleural fluid is 110 milligrams per deciliter. Okay. Um, and so that's how most patients present uh, with with a chylothorax pers- if you have an injury to the thoracic duct itself. Um, and they may be short of breath. They may have uh, chest pain. Um, and a lot of these patients, you know, when you have chylus fluid uh, leaking into the pleural space, can develop immunocompromised states, can develop um, uh, nutritional imbalances. And, and the, the most important thing to know about chyle leaks in general is they can be they, – they can lead to mortality – because of the because of these nutrient imbalances and okay. because of this immunocompromised state that it generates. And what about in the belly for a traumatic leak? So with a traumatic leak in the abdomen, uh, usually it's due to a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, an adrenalectomy, or a nephrectomy. Uh, those are the situations where we've most commonly seen injury to the uh, uh, retroperitoneal lymphatic structures, and those patients present with chylosocytes. Uh, similar diagnostic features that you'd see are the elevated chylomicrons, the elevated triglyceride levels in the fluid um, usually present with distended bellies. And so the, the lymphatic system can, depending on the patient's intake, can usually carry somewhere between one to two liters of fluid per day. Um, and sometimes if you're really eating a lot of fatty foods or whatnot, it, it may ramp up even more and produce even more larger quantities of uh, of chyle. And, and when you have a leak and you're leaking into your abdomen, obviously that can present with 
marked distension of the abdomen um, and and require you know repeated serial paracentesis uh, with patients requiring these large volume taps over the course of you know a week week's time um, to every couple of weeks requiring paracentesis with eight to ten liters and that's what we've kind of seen in a lot of these patients who've had retroperitoneal uh, injuries to the uh, thoracic or to the uh, lymphatics um, they present with you know significant um, morbidity due to these due to repeated need for paracentesis uh, and large volume paracentesis and et cetera. So. so once you're able to really point the finger at a lymphatic leak, I mean, how do you decide which patients might benefit from embolization versus conservative treatment? So usually we start off with, you know, medical management, uh, low fat diet or no fat diet and, uh, and take it from there. Uh, initially, you know, when you have large volume, Kyle leak that persists after conservative management has failed. Uh, a lot of patients may go on TPN and we do the whole conservative management strategy with, with no fat diet and putting them on TPN. And if they still continue to have relatively high output from uh, chest tube or abdominal drain, um, that's when we start to consider uh, performing an embolization procedure. Um, if there's a known injury to the duct, like they injured it during some neck dissection surgery, usually you know, putting them on a, on a, and doing conservative management may not always work, uh, but it's, it's worth trying at least for a short term. And that's usually, uh, how the surgeons here practice as well. We usually start with conservative management and then okay. proceed with embolization as needed. Um, Jeff, you brought this up, uh, talking about MR lymphangiography. Are you, you routinely only getting these in, in children or do you do them in, in adults? Like, where are you getting these? Uh, I think it's a certainly a new frontier a little bit. Uh, we're starting to get it in more and more patients. I find it particularly uh, helpful for patients with cholecystitis or abdominal leakage. It's uh, a little bit inhibited, I think, by various institutions because people may not be familiar with the protocols uh, or feel comfortable performing them. But there's certainly, there's some great papers out of uh, the University of Washington and out of uh, University of Pennsylvania as well that explain the techniques. Uh, so it's initially just used, I think, for more of a, when there's a diagnostic conundrum and uh, you're not sure if the patient really has had it, has an ongoing, or you know the patient has a leak, but you can't really find where. So it's a nice uh, planning study. Uh, but uh, it still ultimately usually requires a true lymphangiogram and uh, true embolization afterwards. The, the most important, one of the important situations where MR lymphangiography is helpful, and this is per max, uh, it can at Penn as well, is, is in pediatric patients. The reason being that putting lipidol into the lymphatic system in a small child or neonate uh, can potentially, you know, as we know, that just putting lipidol in, in a system can can slow down the flow through that system as well. And you can make patients lymphedematous, especially small children and neonates. Uh, if you just go straight to doing lymphangiography and they have a normal lymphatic system, um, that's why in those situations, in particularly in pediatric patients, we do MR lymphangiography with gadolinium uh, and, and make sure that we can diagnose a leak first. And then once the leak has been identified, then proceed with conventional lymphangiography using much smaller volumes of lipidol than we would use in an adult. Um, and then proceed with embolization as, as indicated. Right on. Uh, so last thing to cover that I heard that I'd like to cover from this paper is it's really your standard routine thoracic duct embolization, um, which, uh, you know, 
Let's see. Yeah, let, let's skip over pedal lymphangiography, right? Are you guys doing that at all anymore? I, th- I think adrenal lymphangiography has pretty much replaced uh, pedal lymphangiography in general. Thank God. Uh, so uh, <laughs> let's, let's get through a standard routine thoracic duct embolization. Uh, and we've got a patient with a presumed lymphatic leaf after esophagectomy. And uh, as his creator, I'm going to give him textbook anatomy and anything else that I can give him that would be standard. Uh, so Jeff, he's asleep on your table. So hurry up and fix him. Go. Okay. So I think it's important. Uh, first, we've been putting uh, sequential compression devices on the uh, legs, uh, as Max just pointed out in a recent paper in JVIR. Uh, because these procedures in general can be very lengthy. Uh, Previously, they've been several hours, but uh, now we can do them in a much shorter time. I think Robbie did one in 39 minutes or something uh, a few months ago. So you can do them in record time uh, because the compression devices help uh, push the uh, lapidal up through the system. So initially, uh, you can perform binodal lymphangiography or bilateral lymphangiography of the pelvis. Uh, There's some great papers by Greg Ndolsky and Max Itkin uh, describing the technique. Uh, Using ultrasound guidance, you can put 25-gauge spinal needles into lymph nodes in the pelvis. It's a pretty easy technique. They're usually readily identifiable. Where do you try to get the node? uh, So exactly. uh, Try to place the uh, spinal needle directly in the node itself. Uh, And it's a lot like any other procedure. It's not particularly difficult. Uh, once you look for them, they're pretty large and they're pretty easy to target. Um, once that occurs, uh, you can, I personally hand inject, hand inject uh, lipidol, uh, 5 to 10 cc's, continue to inject it uh, as the retroperitoneal and the pelvic lymphatics uh, continue to opacify. It's important to take multiple spot radiographs just so that uh, you make sure that there's not extravasation, okay. which basically basically can obscure uh, the whole pelvis if uh, the needles basically fall out of the node. Uh, so just slowly inject lipidol uh, until everything uh, opacifies and until eventually you see the cisterna chile. Uh, a helpful technique is also after you've injected, say, 10 uh, or 20 cc's of lipidol, Uh, You can chase it with saline, which, uh, again, can speed up the process and and help opacify things faster. Uh, I can continue. Robbie, you want to continue? Sure. Uh, So then next, uh, once you've successfully identified the cisterna chile or a lymphatic tributary that's kind of leading towards the cisterna chile, we then uh, take a, a... Usually, so the literature describes using a 22-gauge needle, but a modification of that that I've found to be helpful is to actually use a 21-gauge needle. And even in in neonates, we've been successful in in cannulating the thoracic duct in in patients who are under 5 pounds with a a 21-gauge needle successfully um, with relative ease. So then what what I usually do, and this is uh, something that Max taught me as well, is make a tiny curve at the very tip of the needle. You want to make sure it's not a very sharp curve. It just needs to be a smooth kind of gentle curve at the tip so you can steer the needle. Obviously, when you're when you're trying to puncture the cisterna chile from an anterior approach, uh, you're going to be going through multiple different structures, including um, the peritoneum, the uh, liver, potentially the pancreas, um, a bowel, 
the stomach, uh, multiple different structures in route to the thoracic duct. We try to stay in general to the right of the spine when you try to access the cisternochile so, or the lymphatic tributary that's leading to that area. The reason being, we try to avoid going through the aorta, which is which is a good structure you want to stay away from. Um, so, uh, don't so put glue in there. Not, yeah, exactly. You definitely don't want to put glue in there. Um, so we try to approach it kind of from a right-sided direction as opposed to approaching it from the left, um, mostly so that you don't traverse an artery in route to, or the aorta in route to the thoracic duct. It basically sits between the aorta and the azagous vein, uh, or, you know, as it ascends up uh, into the uh, chest. Um so once you've once you've punctured it successfully, you're watching with fluoroscopy to see yourself indent that uh, lipidol blob that you have there that's sitting there. Once you see it pop through it, you kind of go through it and try to aim and pin it against the spine. And once you've pinned it against the spine, we usually take the stylet out and then probe with a wire. Um, the literature describes using a V18 wire. I, I've started to kind of use a transcend wire, an 018 transcend wire, and I find that to be pretty helpful uh, in terms of cannulating most ducts relatively quickly. Um, once you once you're probing, you we want to make sure you're retracting the needle with the wire back inside, and then just keep probing until you f- successfully cannulate the thoracic duct. And when you do, it's it's a it's a great feeling first of all when you get in, uh, but you really get a feel for it just once it goes very smoothly. Sometimes you'll see the wire go up, and it's just kind of just sitting in the retroperitoneum. But you'll really feel the difference when it's actually in the thoracic duct itself, and it just goes right up into the chest relatively easily. Um, once you've done that, we take the needle out. We put in a, a microcatheter. We typically use a 2.4 French prograde here uh, that's 110 centimeters long. Some people use the rapid transit microcatheters because those are much shorter. Um, you can use a high flow, but typically we try not to do that. We usually just use a 2.4 French, either uh, Renegade or a or prograde catheter. Um, and then once you're up in the thoracic duct, then it's just a matter of uh, doing your lymphangiography with contrast to show what the level of the leak is. Uh, and then embolize it with uh, first coils um, at the level of where where it dumps into the IJ subclavian junction. Uh, we put coils there so that you're what you, when you ultimately put glue in, uh, you don't end up uh, overfilling the glue and running the glue into the venous system. Uh, and we typically use a, a concentration of glue of uh, two to three to one. Um, so um, so that's two cc's of uh, two to three cc's of lipidol mixed with one cc of glue. Um, you can use thicker consistencies as well, uh, depending um, uh, depending on the availability of glue. Uh, obviously, glue is very expensive, um, and some institutions may not even have glue available. Um, histoacryl is an alternative um, to, to using N-butyl cyanoacrylate. Um, and then some people, if you don't have a neuro department where you can get access to glue readily, uh, will just coil the thoracic duct entirely. Um, but obviously that requires a lot of coils to, to coil the thoracic duct entirely. And as I said before, and as Jeff alluded to earlier, when you have these variants, you want to make sure you've done a good diagnostic lymphangiography with contrast to show whether there's a duplication of the duct or some variant um, so that you make sure you embolize the entirety of the duct and all the way down to the level just below the diaphragm is typically where I've started to embolize to only because I've had a couple of cases where there's a second channel that comes up from just below the diaphragm and it runs back up uh, and feeds the leak. So just to avoid that complication or avoid that risk of having to do a, a repeat thoracic duct embolization, I've just started to just embolize to just below the level of the diaphragm and, and haven't had any issues since then. Okay. Um, I, will, I just want to say one very quick thing. Uh, Ravi kind of alluded to that, uh, Historically, uh, people had avoided the aorta or avoided uh, abdominal structures in general. 
But I think um, for the most part, they're pretty resilient in general. Our group has looked at some patients, 58 patients uh, recently, and we found very few complications despite the approach, the transabdominal approach. There was only one patient who had a subtotal inferior vena cava thrombosis and one patient that had a perirenal collection. Uh, this data isn't out yet, but uh, it seems like there are relatively few uh, arterial or venous or lymphatic injuries from the transabdominal access to the cisterna chile in general. Yeah, yeah I, I, go ahead. I agree completely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're traversing all these structures, but you're putting a very tiny microcatheter through everything. It's a two, 2.4 French catheter at, at best. Uh, and, and your risk of, or basically the hole will seal up once you remove everything. It's, it's not a big deal to go through all these structures and route to the thoracic duct and or route to the cisterna chile. Okay. Yeah. I think we covered that pretty well. Uh, I think you guys saved our hypothetical patient. So well done. Uh, so yeah. we're going to move on to a case report from Penn on glue embolization of a lymphocele after heart transplantation. Uh, so we have lymphatics all over our body. A leak or disruption could feasibly happen anywhere. And while it's certainly more convenient when they occur in the chest, because usually there's just a dominant channel to target, um, you know, this kind of shows us what you do if, uh, you know, you're trying to target a leak from smaller channels. Jeff, could you walk us through how you figured out how to target these? Uh, exactly. So, I mean, as we all know, lymphocytes can be incredibly tough to deal with. I mean, a lot of times these patients are patients that had either urologic surgery or some sort of gynecologic surgery or some pelvic surgery in general. Uh, they have what looks like a lymphocyte on imaging. Uh, if they're drained, uh, the triglycerides are usually elevated, although we found some cases where the triglycerides are not elevated, and the thought may be that the lymphocytes occur below the uh, intestinal lymphatics, so maybe there isn't as much uh, uptake of fats or triglycerides. But in general, it looks like a lymphocyte. It keeps recurring. It's difficult to treat. Uh, you've placed a drainage catheter. You've sclerosed uh, and so forth, and uh, they can be difficult to manage. So uh, an idea was if these are from a lymphatic drainage, why not do a, why not perform lymphangiography or pelvic lymphangiography, uh, look for a disruption or look for a retroperitoneal lymphatic that dumped into these uh, lymphocytes. And if uh, one is identified, uh, perhaps ethodized oil or lipidol alone is enough to uh, gum things up and slow down the leakage into it. And if not, uh, glue is particularly uh, successful too. Very dilute glue uh, injected through the 25-gauge spinal needles uh, in the uh, pelvic lymph nodes themselves uh, tends to slow and stop uh, the recurrent leakage in these lymphocytes. Okay, that explains it well. Uh, so we're going to move on again to uh, this time a case report detailing the treatment of chylosocieties in a kid with a leak after a Wilms tumor resection. You guys are both authors here, so you'll have to walk us through it together. So the kid ended up requiring two treatments, and you know I, I think there are important lessons to be learned from each. But uh, I'm going to ask a question first to highlight a key point. Uh, Ravi, why don't you treat traumatic chylosocieties like you do for traumatic thoracic duct leaks with uh, chylothorax? So we don't want to embolize all of the lymphatics in route to uh, the thoracic duct when you when you're treating a chylothorax. I, I, the the nice thing about doing thoracic duct embolization is you can do lipidol lymphangiography, opacify the lymphatics, and then cannulate just the cisterna and embolize the thoracic duct alone with and spare 
the lymphatics in the pelvis, spare the intestinal lymphatics, which drain into the uh, into the abdomen, basically the retroperitoneal lymphatics, and ultimately ascend. Um, what happens if you've got a you've got chylocytes from a leak in the belly and you embolize the thoracic duct? Why don't we just do thoracic duct embolization oh, for that? Yeah. Oh, I see your question. So yeah. So if you embolize the thoracic duct, you actually will make chylocytes worse uh, because you're you're embolizing the main outflow of the lymphatic system, and as a result, you're going to back pressure the the whole um, the whole abdomen, and as a result, that leak will get worse in the abdomen. So we don't embolize the thoracic duct when you're doing uh, when you're trying to treat chylocytes. You want to just either embolize the leak itself. Uh, very in a very controlled way. You'll also uh, by either directly sticking it and injecting it with glue, or by cannulating it by one of various techniques. Either if you do interstitial lymph node embolization, or using these retrograde techniques, which we've described uh, coming from above, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But uh, yes, we will. But- um, so for this kid uh, on day one, uh, so you brought up an important point. Uh, he actually had a documented right to left cardiac shunt, uh, and so. Uh, you know, as you alluded to, you really should be very careful with lipidol there. Um, so used water-soluble contrast, use isoview. How well did that work? So typically we start off with, with these interstitial lymph node embolizations. I usually try to use uh, isoview first to identify which lymph node is leaking to the leading, sorry, leading to the channel that's leading to the leak. Uh, so, uh, uh, by using isoview, you can select a couple of different lymph nodes in the groin, inject them all individually, and see which one actually is contributing to the leak uh, in the abdomen. And once you've done that, then you can uh, then switch to uh, the glue lipidol mix and then embolize the leak uh, with that uh, based on which lymph node is actually leading to the leak. That way you don't embolize you know, multiple lymph nodes that are le- sure. leading to normal lymphatics. So that's why we use isoview first. It can be a little bit harder to see, but if you use, um, you know, uh, 75% isoview with 25% contrast, we've been able to see most leaks pretty well. And the nice thing about using isoview is it travels super fast to way faster than lipidol. So within, you know, under, under 30 seconds to, you know, at most a minute, you should be able to ascend up to a level that's in the retroperitoneum and be able to identify the leak relatively quickly. Uh, uh, so in this patient, you guys, um, you, he had two sites of extravasation, one each uh, on, uh, on the iliac nodal chains. And, uh, you know, from your initial access, you guys tried to embolize, but the, the one on the right stopped short, just just short of uh, the site of extravasation. And so you ended up having to bring the kid back for a second day after he had recurrent ascites. Uh, what did you guys do differently to, uh, to get further up and, and, you know, successfully treat that right side? Yeah. So, uh, so the main thing is that we probably used a slightly thicker consistency of glue the first time, and it just stopped just a little bit shy of where we wanted to get to. So by using a slightly thinner consistency of glue, by taking eight cc's of lipidol, uh, to, to one cc of glue, we were able to ascend a little bit higher up into the, uh, into the retroperitoneal lymphatics and successfully close down the leak. Um, and, and it so, also sounded like you had access to node a little higher up this time, you know, rather than starting where you began on day one, uh, you just, you know, looked at that nodal chain, uh, I mean, the chain of lymphatics, and you just kind of stuck up higher to where it was going. And I mean, is that, is that accurate? Right, right. So yeah, so usually once you've ended up gluing one lymph node itself, you're not going to be able to glue that same lymph node again, because some of the glue naturally will get stuck inside the lymph node and and clog up the actual lymph node itself, uh, or the outflow to that lymph node itself. So usually you have to select some other lymph node. And 
all these lymphatics eventually converge to meet with each other to some degree. Some have their own kind of independent pathway, but there will be a, another lymph node that converges eventually to, to make it back up to the same area. So uh, by, by selecting a lymph node that's a bit higher up, you can, you, that was our strategy in order, to, uh, in order to help find that lymphatic channel that was leaking. And then by using a slightly thinner consistency of glue, uh, we were able to get it to go a little bit further up and uh, successfully close the leak down. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Go ahead, Jeff. I'll just say one thing. So I think uh, as Robbie said, I mean, our approach, or I, I think sort of a more modern approach is now to just do the intranodal gluing uh, with various dilute forms of glue. Another option as uh, Max taught all of us was to just stick these retroperitoneal lymphatics themselves and stick uh, retroperitoneal nodes basically right at the site of the leak and just through a 21-gauge needle itself just in, inject glue directly into the targets. Uh, so I know he was particularly uh, fond of that, and that works very <laughs> well for him. So that's another approach to a lot of these things as well. All right, guys, uh, let's go on to uh, balloon-occluded retrograde abdominal lymphangiography and embolization. It's a lot of words. Uh, I'm glad that it's got the uh, the great acronym BORL uh, for abdominal chylus leakage. So I'm going to reenact this a little bit, but uh, you've got a patient with chylus societies whose history sounds like, you know, it's a home run for an abdominal leak. And you guys are feeling great after fixing that kid with Wilms tumors. So you're going to try to approach this one the same way, but calibrated for an adult. You're getting good flow of lipido under the belly and starting to figure out what you're going to do after. Uh, but then you can't find the leak at all, even though you know where it should be. What did you do next? I'll, this is Robbie's technique, so I'll let him describe it. It's and ingenious. <laughs> so, uh, so after you've opacified the retroperitoneal lymphatics, um, the, the thing is, usually these leaks are a little bit lower down in the spectrum. So you can't cannulate the thoracic or the cisterna chile directly and necessarily glue that lymphatic channel. If you can identify an actual channel that's going towards a lymphatic leak, occasionally you may be able to take a needle directly percutaneously stick that channel or stick that area where it's leaking, leading into the leak or uh, leading into the actual area where it's leading into the retroperitoneum. But if, if you can't do that is where these retrograde techniques become extraordinarily helpful. So the way that we have tried cannulating the thoracic duct retrograde, actually, there's a couple of different approaches. So the one way that's more, much more difficult is to try to just directly cannulate it from the arm itself. And in the one case report you're talking about, that's, that's what we ended up ultimately having to do because we couldn't actually identify a cisterna chile or a channel that was leading up towards the thoracic duct. So we actually took a catheter, we took a reverse curve catheter into the uh, jugulo subclavian venous angle, retrograde cannulated the thoracic duct itself with a microcatheter and ran a wire down the thoracic duct. But the typical approach to get retrograde access is to just, if you can identify the cisterna chile, stick the cisterna chile the usual way, run a wire up into the thoracic duct, take a snare from the arm, from, the, from a venous axis in the left arm, grab the wire, and then you've now obtained through and through access from the cisterna chile transabdominally uh, through and out the arm. And then you can pass any number of different devices down the thoracic duct retrograde. Um, so whatever way you get retrograde thoracic duct access, it doesn't matter for this technique. So we called it Boral just because it's uh, balloon occluded retrograde abdominal and phangiography and embolization. 
Um, it's very similar to the technique that uh, you use for BRTO when you're doing uh, retrograde treatment of varices by a splenorenal shunt. The, the whole idea is that the flow through the thoracic duct flows from caudal to cranial. And we're trying to bypass that by putting a balloon up in the, th- in the lower portion of the thoracic duct or at the level of the cisterna chile in order to pressurize the system so you can identify a leak. So initially, what we do is boral, which is a diagnostic balloon-occluded um, retrograde abdominal and phangiography uh, examination. So you inflate a balloon in the, just above the cisterna chile. And then either place a parallel microcatheter, or if you use some of these low-profile uh, occlusion balloons, such as a scepter occlusion balloon or the python occlusion balloons, you can just directly inject through your catheter and then um, identify the area that's leaking. So in that one particular case, um, we were able to uh, inflate the balloon, did a diagnostic lymphangiography with the balloon deflated initially and could not identify the leak. But then after inflating the balloon and repeating it, you could identify a, a, a channel that was leading towards the leak, cannulated that with a microcatheter, and then successfully embolized that by sclerosing it actually with sotradecol. Um, and that worked tremendously well. That that particular patient had eight, eight to 10 liters of uh, ascites per day for roughly eight months, eight or nine months. Uh, and his leak completely stopped a couple of days after the procedure. Um, we subsequently did it again on another patient to just prove the concept that it worked. And it worked again on a, a subsequent patient as well. Same same strategy, same technique using this balloon occluded technique. And it actually is very helpful in a lot of these situations where you have a retroperitoneal chyle leak where you can't access it directly with a needle. So um, I think that's where it, it can prove very useful in patients with societies, And I think it probably opens up even more than that. You know, I read uh, another paper of yours on uh, how you use that to treat uh, in the thorax, um, actually, or at least that access from the arm uh, in a patient with a plexiform thoracic duct. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that, that patient uh, was the one that we actually uh, decided to try putting a stent graft in. I think that's the one you're referring to, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so that one uh, is, uh, so basically that patient had these plexiform channels, as, as Jeff described, this web of uh, abnormal lymphatic channels that were kind of leading towards the left chest and were, as a result, leaking into the left pleural space. And that patient presented not with a necessarily a, a super high output chylothorax, but kind of presented with this slow, persistent chylothorax over time that was just uh, refractory to, to conservative measures, refractory to uh, medical management, um, and, and really was sick of having to get plural, uh, sick of having to get thoracentesis, um, every couple of months. Um, and so as a result, we, we did lymphangiography. Jeff and I did this case together. Um, it was actually a really cool case. We, we, we did lymphangiography, saw these plexiform, uh, channels that were leading from the thoracic duct and then got retrograde access by coming from the arm down. So we cannulated the thoracic duct itself. Uh, and our idea was that because these plexiform lymphatic channels were so tiny, we didn't want to necessarily embolize the whole thoracic duct. I guess that would have been an alternative option was to just coil the thoracic duct cranially and then just embolize the whole thoracic duct with, uh, with glue. Uh, but what we wanted to try to see if we could preserve the lymphatic flow as well, because there were all these abnormal channels on both sides uh, that were kind of emanating uh, around the thoracic duct, was to try putting a stent graft in the thoracic duct. So we, we 
got retrograde access. And because we were able to get retrograde access, we were able to deliver a, a Viabon stent graft into the thoracic duct itself. Um, and mostly because you, you need a relatively large sheath in order to deliver a five or six millimeter Viabon. You need like a six French sheath in order to do that. So given that coming from the arm is a much safer approach than putting a six French sheet through everything in the belly, um, <laughs> that would be kind of ridiculous. Uh, so, uh, so by coming retrograde, by coming retrograde, we were able to deploy a, a stent graft across those leaking channels. And then initially we're able to demonstrate that this thoracic duct stent was open and patent and that there was no flow into these, um, no flow into those plexiform channels anymore. Um, but Unfortunately, as expected as well, given this is a slow flow system, the stent ultimately occluded when we was occluded when we got a follow up imaging study. Um, so it served the same purpose in a sense in that we were able to shut down the thoracic duct entirely by uh, and it was just by using a stent graft. It was able to seal up those leaking channels and eventually the stent graft occluded. So it accomplished the same goal as if we were able to as 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 though we were able to just embolize it with coils and glue. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really cool concept. And, you know, this retrograde access, I feel like, has opened up a lot of other options. I mean, Jeff, you also sent me a paper on uh, using IVIS or, I guess, endolymphatic ultrasound uh, for embolic selection. Exactly. So I was I was going to allude to some of that in case we didn't get to it. So the I think the benefit of this entire technique, as you both said, is that if you come transabdominally, in theory, you can only use, say, a small, a small catheter, such as a two-point French 2.4 French catheter because of fear of traversing structures like the aorta or IVC, but the French retrograde aortic five French sheath. Yeah. Yeah. You don't <laughs> want to put that through there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, coming the retrograde approach, it really opens up to a lot of different options. And I think the potential for a lot of uh, new innovations, for instance, as you mentioned, uh, Robbie and I did a case together also where uh, we knew a patient had a thoracic duct leak uh, clinically. They kept developing uh, fusions, but we couldn't identify the leak on uh, traditional conventional lymphangiography. So we did sort of the same thing. We got the retrograde approach, and then we passed the uh, intravascular ultrasound, or as we call it, endolymphatic ultrasound. And uh, we were able to evaluate the thoracic duct uh, in a retrograde fashion using ultrasound. I, I think one of the next, I think one of the next big frontiers in lymphatic work will probably be lymphedema and treating lymphedema. Jeff and I have been trying to come up with different strategies for how to how to do this that still are, will be yet to come, but um, are, are uh, finding a way to treat patients with lymphedema in a more minimally invasive way. I think would be extraordinarily beneficial. Last time we talked about patients with uh, lower extremity edema, secondary to venous. A disease and venous occlusion, but a lot of these patients where you can't explain why they have persistent edema end up having lymphedema, and it can be a devastating complication for patients to have and to suffer from with uh, having either lower extremity or upper extremity lymphedema, and coming up with a way to potentially manage that devastating condition uh, using interventional techniques, I think is going to be one of the big things that's probably going to come out in the next uh, five to 10 years. That's exciting. And I look forward to hearing about the progress you two continue to make. Uh, while we have a second, Jeff, I, I forgot to ask you last time about the app that the two of you guys have worked on, the IR Core Review app. Can you tell us about it? So together and with uh, one of our colleagues, Anthony Hage, we uh, created an app uh, which has some fundamental IR questions. There are about 300 of them now. 
uh, that just sort of go over the basics. Because I don't know uh, what your experience was, but in residency, I really knew very little about IR. And uh, so these kind of go over some of the fundamentals. It's a uh, ever-changing process, and we're adding new questions and changing things. Uh, But it's just basically a start of a question bank uh, that people can test their knowledge and learn some new things about IR. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, You know, the second week in a row, we uh, are really appreciative of all your efforts for what you're doing, you know, both out there in our field and uh, and here with us on Backtable. And we wish everybody happy and safe holiday season. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.